Hey y'all, this is another episode of Once Upon a Stream that I'm your host Maddie Shook. I'm back with Megan Mann. Hello! So before we get into the main feature of today's episode and just talking about like another title on the platform and business as usual, um, it's not business as usual right now. It's not. So... If you're not listening to this on like current release at another time. So this is end of May in 2020. So basically in the past week. um, A lot has happened. A lot's happened. Like a lot in just, dude, it's just been a week. And so basically the murder of George Floyd is the big thing which has resulted resulted in protests throughout the country and now spreading to the world but um first starting as like peaceful protests but due to like police aggression and all of that things have escalated and it it's intense it's hardcore um it's a lot to take in and so that megan and i were just talking of You know, our podcast, we generally like it to be kind of this escapism from the day-to-day and the dreariness of, like, real life and, like, all the stress that you deal with. And so this is just for about an hour. You get to just hear us giggle and fangirl about Disney stuff, and it's fun. And we love doing it. We do. We love bringing the levity into your lives as well. as It's a moment of levity for us as well. Yeah. It's – for us, we get to take a break from – jobs and like the past COVID craziness yeah that's still happening too don't worry Um, it's still there so that's been happening and that's been like you know Disney's a way to cope for a lot of people and that there's a lot of aspects of like in life and hardships and struggles that you deal with that it's a great like release and there's there's some value to escapism and like self-care is important, but to a degree that you can't just completely ignore everything. And so this week has just brought to light of people's like privilege in the bubble that they mm-hmm. get to live in and just getting the luxury to be quote unquote apolitical or like I don't talk about politics on the internet, social media, etc. Um that's one matter but I I'm trying to just use wise wording here because I am kind of speaking improvisationally could have had this up but I, I just wanted to make it real and so basically yeah in a lot of cases using Disney as escapism is totally valid like absolutely I've done it, I've done it when I have dealt with like mental health stuff of when my depression's bad, watch a Disney movie and I feel better, you know, that's all right. But when there's a real injustice in the world that you can't just turn a blind eye to it and just not deal with it and just focus on like fantasy and the com- the comfortable stuff. Right. So only like, focusing on the comfortable is not, you can't like, do it. This week started, as far as like in the middle of this week, 
y'all know how much I love the theme parks and stuff, we we got the date that Disney World's opening back up, like, normally. That's a super exciting, exciting thing, and I probably wouldn't have shut up about it all week long, but other things are more important right now that the parks will be there uh, when they're going to be there, but this week, that's not what we need to be talking about. Right. That... So both Megan and I are white, like about as basic white girl as you can get. And so it's true. We are. But our privilege standpoint, now is the time that we have to use our platform and our our voice to just shed light on the injustice and also show that we're not tolerating it. It's not okay. And that systemic change needs to happen. And that we're not, it's not, oh, I'm so shocked. And like, this isn't us. Yeah. It's, when you look at the power structures and everything, it kind of is. And that's, that's not good. That's not okay. And for, for me personally, since I'm Christian, like it's not biblical. It's not how Jesus wants us to live and so it, it's just wrong and it it's heartbreaking to just every time I go on Twitter that I have to measure it out because I don't like like I said I don't just want to stick my head in the sand and ignore this but that there's only so much just pain and hurting throughout and it feels like the solution is just so simple of all you... this that happened was just because we wanted four cops who one person killed a man and the other just watched just stood him do idly it. by and didn't do anything. And when they were in the power position to be able to do something and fail to do so and fail to do their job to quote unquote, protect and serve their community. They protected. No, that, that's what, that's all we wanted. We wanted, we wanted justice for a man that was murdered. That, Unjustly. That... For a crime that did not deserve that force. It was a and suspected that it's not forgery. confirmed that he even committed. Yeah. Right. It was a suspected forgery. So when you sit there and say, you divinely decide, I'm going to keep my knee on this man's neck for a suspicion, that's when it all goes wrong. You shouldn't... It shouldn't be, your knee shouldn't be on anyone's neck, period, for an extended no. period of time. If you can hear someone saying, help, I can't breathe, please stop. It was you, deliberate. It was cold-hearted. It was wrong. And, and the other three just stood by, did nothing. And so that's where. And for them to say that it was a, um, it was like a tactic, no police force instructs their officers to detain someone in that fashion. That is not acceptable. That's not taught. He was on the gr- Yeah. That is something he decided at the end of the day. You know what? I'm going to stick my knee on this man's neck where I know in this position could easily block his windpipe. And I'm yeah. okay with that. And the other three didn't say anything like, hey, you know, you got to ease up. You got to get your knee off his neck. He's not. He's not trying to get away. We can put him in the back of the squad car. It's not a big deal while we figure this out. 
None of them stood up for this man, and that's an issue. And it's systemic across the country. And you can't sit there and say, oh, well, they were just a few cops. Well, how many other cops are like them? And why are we allowing it to continue? Why are we putting the hand, yeah. power in the hands of those who do not understand that they do not get to wield that power however they see fit? That's not acceptable. And not seeking as far as de-escalation of conflict as the first solution. And so that's that was just the main goal of everyone just wanted justice. And since it's hasn't been happening that because it's just the the main cop that's been arrested so the protests continue and the aggression from the police as far as they're not it's not just failing to de-escalate it's actually they're the ones perpetrating the escalation correct and so that's continuing and and it's not and if this was a white man this would not be how this situation played out they would have they probably wouldn't have even cuffed him on a suspicion they really probably wouldn't have. The fact of the matter is that this was an absolute racist attack. This was. That man obviously saw this very calm black man as a threat and thought, I have to detain him as best I can, when if that was a white man in Minneapolis, it would not have gone anywhere near the way it went with this man, with no, George Floyd. and then... And so as this is continuing, basically the reason why we just wanted to talk about this a little bit at the start of the episode is just this is like the riots and everything are, well, it's not even like riots is the wrong terminology as far as the protests, which in many scenarios and in many of the cities are have taken on the shape more of riots just because of like the police conflict um that has been started on that end um if like if you're not able to go out for those protests or if if you're still taking care of your health because of covid you know which is definitely still hugely important or just if like myself if you're still working all of that um there are many understand ways that you can it, there's help. there's many ways that you can still help and you so, can donate to the ACLU you can donate to freedom funds wherever you are if you just google wherever you're from freedom funds you freedom can, funds bail funds as far as in your city that if you have the means to do so that our freedom funds are used to bail out protesters who have been arrested um, you can shop from black owned businesses um, you could support your black artists, your black, uh, business owners, do everything you can, but not staying silent doesn't do anything. It keeps you, it keeps this going and that's not okay at the end of the day. So saying, yeah, exactly. And so silence says volumes. And if like you have black people and loved ones in your life, check in on them. Absolutely. And if you don't know do it respectfully. If yeah, if you don't know how to if you don't understand or there you have a question, reach out to your African American friends and say, What am I not understanding? What am I not seeing? Please explain this to me. Please explain how I can help. Because the only way everything is going to move forward is if we're all on the mm-hmm. same team. Yeah. 
And we have to understand and we have to be willing to do our part as those who, especially us, I mean, we again are white suburban women. Yeah. And we are absurdly privileged. If we, like, if we went for a run, no one would say anything to us. Again, we wouldn't be running at night, though, because, again, we are still women. So we wouldn't be running at night. But if we went for a run at 3 p.m. in the middle of the day, no one would say anything to us. If we were suspected of forgery, we would just have questions asked of us. Nothing more than that. And we understand that. And that's not okay Mm -hmm. either for us to have that privilege that we are just innately born with. We have to be able to help as best we can to make sure that future generations don't deal with this. So just to kind of wrap things up a little bit of just do what you can, donate where you can, um, speak up about it, that doing a post with an inspirational quote and speaking directly to stuff I've seen in the Disney community of with a like nice sounding quote with a picture of Princess Tiana. Yeah, that's super tone deaf and don't do that. Yeah, that's, no. No, please don't. Um, no. Same with stuff with Judy Hopps because, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Just, we're, we're here now for the rest of the episode just to offer some escapism if you do need to deal with it of just that I know everyone's timelines and stuff that it, it is it is healthy to take some breaks every now and then and if that's what you need then we're happy to be there for you but um also do your part and speak out donate if you can it means a lot yes all right so on a drastically different note um we saw a few episodes of so there is a new original series that did come out in the past couple weeks on Disney Plus and so it's called Prop Culture and basically is hosted by Daniel Lanigan who is like a hardcore like movie prop enthusiast and so for folks who really like behind the like when you obsess with behind the scenes featurettes and like just really loving movies and everything that went into it and the care and the craft and all of that that's I I think this series is for you that it, it's a lot of fun to watch. Oh, and yeah. So basically, they're quick little episodes, too. So that's were, kind of fun. I think the longest one was literally a full 35. But yeah. other than like 30, 35 minutes. And I think there's like six episodes total. We're mainly going to focus it, on about. No, it's eight. Eight. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's eight because it's Mary Poppins, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, uh, Narnia, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Uh, Tron. Tron, help me. I'm like, I know there are more. Um, oh my God, what are they? <laughs> I have to Google it because I just spent the other day watching all the ones I hadn't watched yet. And here I am unable to... Okay, Mary Poppins, Tron... Oh, duh, hello, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and The Muppets. Yes. I knew there was eight. So we're going to focus on like a few of like just the highlights, um, especially for some properties that were like important to us. Um, So I, this isn't going to be one of our like crazy long ones um, because we've had some of those recently, but the 
Yeah, it, it was fun to watch. The, the really celebrity cameos it. were some were odd, some are relevant to the movies involved, and then some are just like, I guess this person was available and yeah. works at ABC. <laughs> so right. It's... Oh, right. I know. But what I loved, before we even get into like episode by episode, just like what I loved as a whole was that it takes you behind the scenes of these iconic films. Like, they're not just saying, like, hey, I got, uh, here's a prop that's really, really cool. It's, I, I mean, it is that. But also, at the same time, it shows, like, what went into production because with animation and matte paintings and Mary Poppins and Tron and how they utilized the giant ant and shrunk the kids, I love that Rick Moranis was, like, props are vitals to not only to the characters, but to the story as well. And, you know, they are. And especially other than Pirates and Narnia, this series focuses primarily on films pre-CGI. So it takes you behind that curtain and shows you, like, these little tricks that they yeah. did. Like, with, the like, with, um... And even with those ones, as far as all of these were pretty much before... They just did CGI for everything. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like, they... Because even with Pirates and Narnia, like, you mixed stuff. That they had a, yeah. so much that was practical. And then the CGI was used to just kind of amp things up to another notch. But And I guess other than... I guess... Well, yeah. I guess now that I'm thinking about it, other than, um, like, James McAvoy's legs or Aslan speaking, there isn't... Or, like, the centaurs and everything. There isn't, like, a ton of CGI in Narnia now that I'm thinking about it. Um, at least not the first one. Um, because a lot of it is, like, they show you in the episode. There are literally men in the Minotaur suits. Like, the, it, yeah, that's real. Legit. It's legit. Like, other than, like, a, uh, yeah, I guess that's right. A couple, other than a couple of things in both, you know, because in Curse of the Black Pearl, we don't have Davy Jones yet, so we don't have Bill Nye as the squid with the dots on his face in pre-production, yeah. you know, or in filming. So I guess, yeah, you're right. This is predominantly a series that lacks CGI, and especially with a movie like Tron, like Mary Poppins, that really actually is, like, the tricks that they show you with these props, like, they show you how they did all of these things, it is, like... It's so cool to see all of the tricks that they used pre-computers, which now we see, okay, well, they use computers, so that's fine. Like, we know how they did that. Mm -hmm. You know, like, especially with a film like a Marvel film, we were like, yeah. well, 29% <laughs> of this scene is CGI, and we know that. But with these films, they didn't have that luxury, whereas most films now do. So I think that was one of, like, my favorite parts of this series so far, because I'm assuming they'll probably do another season, just because this dude seems like he has a lot of memorabilia. There are so many movies to, like, talk about, yeah. Oh, exactly. So I feel like that's something that really stands out in this series, is that it is showing that these props are super important to the film, because without them, you know... You wouldn't have the film that you have or these iconic scenes that we love so much. And it is without CGI. And I think that's the one of the best parts about it. Yeah, and it, it is fascinating between both the host um, and then some of the people that he interacts with that you realize that, like, film memorabilia collecting is, like... Very serious. 
a very serious subculture and people are really intense about it and that have like insane collections <laughs> like because i cannot th- imagine what his co- where does he house his i need to know yeah. because there's no like oh my god it blew me away i literally had to pause it and like snapchat a video to like just the people i know that 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 the snap would resonate with is that i was like you guys this man has an entire room in his home dedicated to narnia memorabilia do you understand what i'm saying there is an entire room in this man's house but not just like a little trinket here and there Mm -hmm. no he has the beavers he has the beavers like the literal like beaver puppets basically (laughs) he literally has the beavers and he has like mannequins set up with oh my god when they walked into that room and it had the white witch's costume when she first yes. meets Edmund, I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> oh my god! And he's got, like, the packages that Tumnus drops when he first meets Lucy, and you're like, bro, did you buy this house for this room? And, like, <laughs> so I have seen Jadis's dress in person at the Heroes and Villains costumes exhibit that was at D23, and it's, like, it's breathtaking because also Tilda Swinton is just super tall because oh, yeah. when you real when you see movie costumes in person the first thing you realize is how oh, tall the person mo- is most movie actors are tiny like literally just like miniature oh my god of- I went to the um the, it's a traveling exhibit now but the very first place that the Harry Potter exhibit came to was Chicago and like a bunch of the cast members were there to like open it, whatever. And my friend and I went the second day it was open and we're walking through and we're like, Oh, so Emma Watson isn't tall. Oh, she's, Oh, she's not tall at all. And she's like very scared. Okay. Okay. I feel better. I feel better. I feel so much better. And like, you look at the movies from the first Harry Potter or the costumes from the first Harry Potter movie, you know, like when they're playing the chess game and you're like, did you buy these from baby gap? Because they're just, they're tiny. They're so t- so it is, though, it is very alarming to see some of these costumes in real life. And I think it was... I remember one of the ones I was just taken aback by is um, Anna Kendrick's Into the Woods Cinderella dress. And I was just like, Anna Kendrick is so small. <laughs> there was, um, I don't remember if you if you saw this, but there was, I think it was in the Great Movie Ride, I want to say... I think like when you come out of the great movie ride, there were there used to be costumes in there, and um, they had they had costumes from Narnia, but they had co- like a Dame Judi Dench costume from Shakespeare in Love, and I was like, "Oh, you real small lady, you real small lady." Okay, okay, yeah. It, it so it is very alarming to see costumes like in the Mary Poppins episode when. First, when they pulled out, like, the Julie Andrews costume, which we all know what Julie Andrews looked like at that time. Yes. And, like, but how svelte she was. And then when they pull out, which, the okay. The little chain coat. When I say, when no one is surprised, like, I texted my best friend, and I was like, so I just watched the Mary Poppins episode, cried, no one's surprised. And he's like, literally no one who knows you is surprised that you cried during something involving Mary Poppins. Because Mary Poppins is, like, one of my all-time favorites so when he pulled out 
the yellow coat and she started crying, I was like, oh my god, her coat is so cute and so small. Oh my god. Like, I was the most emotional person because she's crying. The actor who plays, or the actress who plays um, Jane Banks in the first movie, he's talking to her and showing her the carousel that, uh, you know, inspired also, Walt Disney. It's, it's crazy of realizing, oh, so since she was a little girl in, like, 1964 when this came out, like, she's not that old. But it's just that movie you just associate with being so long ago that you're like, oh, yeah, you're probably just like in your like 50s or 60s, something like that. Yeah, because, I mean, you think Julie Andrews was only in like her early 30s at that point, and she's still around kicking it, going off, making movies. Yeah, so she's in her 60s because I'm like, oh, you're just like a little bit older than my dad. Like, (laughs) yeah, it it didn't connect for some reason because I'm just like, oh, Mary Poppins is like olden times (laughs) right so it's so it is something that you're just like it is kind of a little disconcerting in a way because you're like oh well okay and like i don't know if you if you watched it but in her very last season of oprah she had the whole cast of the sound of music on Mm -hmm. and you're looking at these people and you're like the whole cast is oh the whole cast is here like no one's okay like, it's very weird to be like, this movie, I associate it with such a long time ago, but all these people are still here. So it is a little, it's weird. I guess I'm just going, like, you know what I mean? Like It's a little trippy. Yeah, because you're like, oh, you're not that old. Okay. Okay, sure. Sure. But... <laughs> Yeah, let's let's just get into it. Let's start with Mary Poppins because that episode was delightful. It really was. It really was. And like the first part I got emotional at was when well, first of all, I had no idea that Richard Sherman was the only person who was allowed to touch the piano in Walt's office. Like I had no idea, which I loved that little factoid. That was my favorite. And I loved him. He was in, well, he was in, was he in the Imagineering story? Yes, he okay. was in it as well. Yeah. Okay, he was. And so I was like, I'm, cause I'm watching it and I'm like, man, he was just in something else that I watched. So I, I, I thought it was the Imagineering story, but I, um, didn't also, double check. Recommendation. We may do an episode on it at some point, but The Boys, which is the documentary about the Sherman brothers. Oh, yeah. It was on Netflix for a while. It is coming to Disney Plus. So, oh, we'll be doing um, an episode about that. Yeah. Let's be real. They wrote some of the most, like, the just the best well-known songs. So. Their story's fascinating, though. And uh, so yeah. now anything with Richard Sherman just warms my heart and makes me happy. I just think he's such, like, a sweet little old man, and I want to hug him. And I, But I had no idea that that was a real thing that he was... Literally every Friday he'd go into Walt's office and play Feed the Birds. Oh, I love that. Which, let's let's just, like, talk about that in the beginning, like... Before we even, like, get into what they do have, they tell you at the beginning, it was, this was pre-Royo uh, Disney saying, okay, let's open the archives. We gotta archive this stuff. Let's, yeah. yeah, let's archive the stuff. Let's make sure the Disney history is preserved. So, Mary Poppins, a lot of the costumes, a lot of the props are just gone. They're just 
gone. You have what, you or know. Or weren't properly maintained, and so they decayed or had, like, major damage to it. Right. And so, like, you know, you only have, really, what the actors or production team took home with them. And then, like, very few things that were just, like, sold off. Um, so he's on the hunt, really, for, like, anything that he can find in regards to Mary Poppins. And, like, it made me very emotional to learn that the original um, snow globe that Mary Poppins has when she's singing that is sitting in Walt's office and I just Mm -hmm. got so emotional because it was that's one of my like favorite stories that Julie Andrews has ever said on anything where and it's in obviously it's in Saving Mr. Banks but well kind of it's I mean that's more about P.L. Travers but he does say like how badly he wanted to make those films you know adapt that book and then he told julie andrews like oh i would really love for you to be mary poppins and she says oh well i'm pregnant and he says it's okay i'll wait like he only Mm -hmm. wanted julie andrews and could you imagine i mean now we have a second mary poppins but could you imagine anyone other than julie andrews being mary poppins no and i think it's for the best and everything so basically julie andrews had to decide between or i always get it confused oh wait never mind one of the project is either mary poppins or sound of music that julie did instead of my fair lady she did um i believe it was sound of music sound of music because yeah she was doing a broadway show in and she told and mr and you know walt disney went and saw her and he said, I want you to play Mary Poppins. And she's like, well, I'm pregnant. And he's like, I got time. <laughs> I will. I am willing to put off production until you are ready. Like, he wanted to make this movie so bad for his daughters. And he wanted only Julie Andrews But Julie Andrews', Andrews is magic and her voice is perfection. Oh, so. my God. Just, ugh. How Queen can of you, Genovia. How can you ever, right? And then, like, again, she came back into the Disney fold later on as the only proper role for her, which is the Queen of Genevia. It's, it's, it's amazing. Oh, God. Queen of Genovia. Oh, so amazing. But it is interesting in that first episode to see how very few artifacts there are and how... But also, I'm so glad they have the, like that they're taking it to just like store the matte paintings and like keep them like framed and preserved because I'm like they're so gorgeous though that I'm like dude if you did an auction to sell those like they, they had, would go for so much money because they're stunning they had so many paintings like if nothing else they have hella hella paintings like but they were so pretty of just you didn't realize oh you're like oh before green screen they just did like a painting in the background which uh, just again learning that was mind-blowing because you see you know in in some old hollywood musicals which is like so almost cringy to watch now where you're just like oh wow that's a that's just like they had they would put position a screen behind the stationary thing in front of them and they would either like run in front of like footage they'd already taken or they'd drive a car through footage they'd 
already taken or, you know, um, like in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, they'd be going through the mountains in the snow and you'd see like the mountains in the snow behind them, but they're not going anywhere. So there were all these tricks, but like to learn that Mary comes down into London just in front of a painting. Oh my God. <laughs> and that painting was gorgeous. It, it was so pretty. And so seeing those was really cool. And then, so Aaron Andrews' appearance was very random. Well, that's but... because, you know that's why, you know, you know it is because Aaron Andrews is part of the ABC family. ABC, ESPN, ESPN all of that. ESPN, like she's, she's, uh, she does work with the NFL. She's the host of Dancing with the Stars. That's why Aaron Andrews was there. So like when he said Aaron Andrews, I was like, oh, we're just really whoop, reaching out into the expansive universe yeah. and saying, Because it was just being works. like, oh, Mary Poppins has so many famous fans. And you're like, yeah, because everyone likes Mary Poppins. Like who doesn't so it's love just, Mary Poppins? Who could they get? Right. But, but anywho, they go to the Walt Disney archives and they. In an undisclosed the- location, which they say every single time in an undisclosed location. Because they don't want people to find it. It's somewhere in Burbank or Glendale. Exactly. Like, let's be real. But it's... So basically they go into the archives and they... It's the horses from... The carousel scene. From the carousel scene. And one, Julie Andrews is perfectly preserved. No one's allowed to touch it. Even with gloves. Yeah. They say, absolutely not. You are not allowed to touch it. Um don't pretty much and it is perfectly preserved it's still purple and beautiful and what i and then you see the dick van dyke one and it's just destroyed and but what i loved about seeing the dick van dyke horse is that aaron andrews even asks like are you guys going to restore this and she's like no because that would destroy the original integrity of the horse and we don't want that yeah because it is pretty damaged and it is one of those things where if you were to restore it very little of the original would be left yeah very little of the original would be left and that's not okay so then at that point you just might as well make a replica i mean yeah but what i did also super love is that they were made to look like them I know it was so cute. I thought that was the cutest thing. Like Dick Van, they say that Dick Van Dyke even on the set of Mary Poppins walked up and looked at it and goes, "Oh my God, it has my chin! It has my chin!" And then Aaron Andrews points out that it has the other one has a very haughty, like just prim expression to it. Yeah, which I think you know again that's what you associate with Mary Poppins. Which I don't know if have you ever read the book Mary Poppins? I have not. It's okay. You don't have to. Um, it's it's very hard to get through. Um, but me and when the little girl I take care of were at home all day, every day we would read books together. We read two chapters of a chapter book, and we went through like a classics phase. And we she was obsessed with Mary Poppins, so we read the book, and it took us forever to get through it because it is just so. Mm. And actually, they make Mary Poppins much nicer in the movies. Yes. Because she's, which anyone who sees Mary Poppins is like, well, she wasn't all that nice. 
well, then don't read the books because she is downright mean. And you're like, oh, oh no. Oh, I don't like Because P.L. Travelers was working through some stuff. She was. And again, we all know that if you've seen, you know, Saving Mr. Banks, she really was working through some stuff. Um, so I'm not, you know, surprised that she had a very, you know, mean nanny figure. Um, but yeah, so, um, I did like that, that the horses were meant to look like them. I enjoyed that. This was full of, like, really fun information. And I love that they took... Because, again, they had, like, an extensive amount of artwork from Mary... They might not have props. They might not have costumes. Well, they have a few costumes. They have a few costumes, but they had a lot of paintings, a lot of drawings, and they had a lot of um, sketches of the costumes, which... If you don't know, um, the person at the time who did the costumes and the props was married to Julie Andrews. Yeah, so they're no longer married at this point, but they're Tony not. Walton was um, Julie Andrews' husband for many years. And that during Mary Poppins, that uh, he worked on the costumes for that. And so um, the host gets to bring, like, some of like the sketches to him as well as because none of the them different were pieces of Mary Poppins costume because none of them were signed um, and Disney wanted them to be signed they were like we don't know whose artwork is whose so he was able to identify oh yeah that's my stuff and so they're like go ahead and sign it which was like a nice moment and for him getting to like see the and he got so emotional the Mary like the full Mary costume again and like pointing out just the intricate little details and all of that and that associates it with just a happy time because like we said they delayed production because Julie was pregnant so during this it was kind of so they were married and it was just when they had their first child Mm -hmm. so you know that's such a warm happy time in one's life and so now that you know they're much older in their like 70s and possibly more than that i think it's just seven I, th- I think she's like 72 i think i read something like that yeah so, so somewhere in their in there. 70s yeah so to be able to like reflect on like at such a like warm and nostalgic time that like he got emotional so i got emotional and it was just it was precious and then like we kind of talked about you know a lot of this stuff that you know just do the passage of time that it broke down that so the snow globe that is in the feed the bird sequence like we already established the original is in walt disney's office and so then basically there was a replica that was made for mary poppins returns which the prop master on that then what's kind of cool is when he made the replica for mary poppins returns he made a second one for himself just to keep oh i know i love that because he's like dude i'm I'm making it so I want one for me <laughs> so which respect right I love that he's like well I'm already here so I'm gonna do it like once you make a mold for something you know I mean it's already there all you have to do is just make them just pour stuff into the mold now and I'm like dude if they sold those I would like totally get one. Oh yeah but they'd be so expensive mm-hmm. but <laughs> That it's just poignant. So one of the things I love about Mary Poppins is that you do have this fun and vibrant songs that, you know, you have your step in time and oh my God. and Jolly Holiday and all that. But Feed the Birds is just such a quiet, 
reverent moment that just gets to the heart of the movie and what this is all about and that you can see why it's like so touching and was so personal to Walt and like his history and why he loved that song so much oh yeah and I loved speaking of and also just when you know the Sherman Brothers story that the contrast between those two moods of songs highlights the contrast between the two brothers involved in the songwriting process and so now that Bob Sherman's gone that it's kind of cool that this song and really this song endures as a tribute to him I love that so much because if they're like of all the songs in the Sherman Brothers canon that one's the most Robert and not as much Richard and so but his brother definitely carries that on and we who love Mary Poppins and Disney music carry it on too oh yeah and since you brought it up I also just like I was just emotional for this whole thing but you can it's not just like that I got emotional about it as like a fan because obviously that was like a movie I've held dear like my whole life and I've shared it you know with the kids I take care of with my nephew and you know like it was really sweet like when we went to Disney World in January my nephew was so excited that we were going to 1900 Park Fair to like go see specifically Mary Poppins like he loves Mary Poppins and so I it's not just like I'm getting emotional because that movie means so much to me but you see everyone that was involved with it also getting emotional like you know you see Tony getting super emotional and like saying like he hugged it and he's like I'm seeing like an old friend and this is so this movie was so important to me and my family and then you have um the choreographer when he brings out who was amazing oh my she god she was awesome she was amazing I loved her so much um and he brought out one of the uh the chimney sweeps. chimney sweeps yeah like from chimney brushes from yeah. step in time and she immediately gets very emotional and like very choked up and like step in time is probably like my third second favorite song from um from mary poppins first being chim chim tree then step in time then i love to laugh which is like a completely over underrated scene i love that scene so much it makes me obviously it makes me laugh um but i love the step in time scene i think it's fan fantastic i love it so much it's, it's insane of how it how it came together and like i love when she's talking about it and she's like we're sitting there telling these people you gotta do these crazy things and they're just jumping and flipping and saying let's do it and she's like she's loving retelling this story and it's like it's not just emotional for fans to be watching this it's emotional for the people involved to be discussing it like this mean that film meant so much to them and it that's why i think it's it translates so well to people like you can tell so much love went into making that movie mm-hmm. that it translates to people that you're like okay this was made with so much love and it's you can tell and that's why i love it so much it's just everyone who was involved loved being involved other than pl travers basically basically but basically other than pl travers everyone was so happy to be involved in making mary poppins that you're like oh man it's not just for me it's like for the people that were involved they're just as attached to it and joyful about it and emotional about it's, it it's the one instance where the movie is better than the book oh 
it is a it is in that very very rarefied atmosphere where the movie is actually better than the book and that happens so seldomly and i can probably list off like maybe six movies that are actually better than the book and that's so that's saying something true and then speaking of book movie adaptations sorry i had to do it it's okay i i had a narnia phase and so i listened to that like score Mm -hmm. for like a really long time you know i'm okay so i listened to the prince caspian score like on loop it's on my ipod and everything okay so here's my thing with narnia right so i i think i read like ooh maybe two or three of them maybe when I was in elementary school and just kind of like dropped off um, because then I like only ever read Ella Enchanted and Holes like back to back for like two years um but I wasn't I, I never saw the first one ever and but my mom really loved it um my sister really loved it and then I remember sitting in a movie theater I cannot remember for the life of me what it ran before, but do you remember, like, the very first Prince Caspian trailer where it just starts with them floating in the night towards the battle at Prince Caspian's castle? Yeah. So, I'm watching that. Again, I have not seen the original Narnia. I'm sitting there, and I'm watching it, and I'm, like, halfway through the trailer, and I was, like, smacking my mom, and I was like, whatever this is, I need to see this immediately. So, then when it comes up that it's for Narnia I'm like that's a Narnia movie so I only ever watched The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe so that I could see Prince Caspian and I was solid and I was like really mad at myself for not watching it I was like this is actually an amazing movie but I will still say that my favorite one is still Prince Caspian even if he does have some weird Catalan Italian mashed up accent. Oh, we're we're doing a Prince Caspian episode. It's going down. Oh, thank God, because it's my favorite. Um, but I was I was really mad at myself for for waiting. Um, because how do you, could you imagine me not enjoying something that featured Tilda Swinton as this crazy white witch and then. James McAvoy as a fawn and you have Liam Neeson as Aslan and you're like and and then you have um that's another one where the child actor casting is spot on oh my god it was so incredible and then you and then you have um oh my god his name just Jim Broadbent there we go um playing as the professor yes uh who if like, as I was reading the books, because, again, the kids I take care of, we went back and read the series as a whole together um, a couple of years ago. And, like, I'm reading it, and then I'm noticing that, like, I j- because, again, I hadn't read them since I was little. And he said, in the books, you realize that that man is was there at the dawn of Narnia. And you're like, wait, hold on. <laughs> hold on. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. So I just, ugh, I just... Did you have the big book that had all seven books together in one thing? No, we read the... That, is, like, that the was box from Costco. Set. No, we read, like, the box set that had each individual one. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, but I, do you, um, I had seen props from Prince Caspian because I don't know if you, if you had ever gone during this time, but after Prince Caspian, I want to say it was like, uh, yes, they had a little yeah, um, where exhibit in the parks for a little uh-huh, bit. Uh-huh, it's where, uh, it's right by Toy Story Land and the Pixar area now at, M- sorry, I almost called it MGM, Hollywood Studios. Um... And it was just this building, and it had, you had to, like, wait in line, and then you went through this thing, and then there was a big Prince Caspian thing, and they had all these props, and they had, like, they did have the stone, though, like, from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because it's in, you know, it's in Prince Caspian, and they had, like, the stone. No, it was super cool. Like, it was so cool. They had all these props and costumes, and... That was another instance where, like, I saw a costume that Anna Popplewell wore, and I was like, oh, okay. Um, all right. Tiny. <laughs> yeah, and, like, you saw how, like, skinny Skander Keens was and all that stuff. So that was so fun when they got everyone but Skander to go see the costume. Because all three of them, they had Georgie Henley. Can we agree Georgie Henley is just, she's delightful. Oh my god, she is the cutest. And then they had I Anna need her Popplewell. to be in things because she she's is. grown up to just she, be so adorable and fabulous. I went on like, you know, a bender because like, you know, I'd seen Anna Popowell in Rain, which I don't know if you watched Rain on the CW, but I, I watched the first season and then Yes, she was one of uh, Queen That show is bonkers. I know. And she was one of Queen Mary's, uh, which also, Lady in Waiting. Yeah, yeah, which also speaks to like just the time. Like that whole story was bonkers. So um, that it, that rain is peak CW. It's, oh yeah. Which, but I will say they had contemporary songs, but in a classical um, instrument instrumental, and you're like that, and the costuming. Oh my god, and, it's just amazing. And then um, William Mosley was on. Just the Royals. The Royals, which was this trashy, trashy E show, which I ate up because it was like, it was supposed to be like uh, a scandalous version of the um, English royalty or the British royalty. Yeah. And I loved it. I ate it up. I thought it was great. Um, and I was really sad that it ended. But uh, they are very like, li- they. I mean, they are still working actors, but I didn't realize that all of them were like they went to oxford or cambridge all of them like yeah all of them and that's like why they took a little break and that's fine but um i loved them seeing like their costumes and i loved them seeing um like the props like the gifts that they were given like um uh oh my god their names just escaped me for no reason at all um, Susan's horn and Susan's bow and arrow and his sword and he's like yeah no this is like a and I loved I didn't realize that Weta made all of their stuff yes which I knew they filmed in New Zealand because nowhere in the world is as gorgeous as that um, yes. and also that's where they filmed Lord of the Rings and where are you going to get something as lush as the Shire and all of Middle Earth well, of course, for Narnia, you're going to go where the Shire and Middle Earth were in New Zealand. Um, but I think one of my fi- which before I get into this, I loved that because anyone who's never been to Comic Con saw the calmest version of Comic Con ever. Yes, like what was that? <laughs> He's just like he just like walks right up to the booth and like they're they're talking and not shouting at each other. That doesn't happen at real Comic Con, guys. 
like it doesn't. That was the calmest, tamest, most unrealistic version of Comic-Con you will ever see. And they just take a little jaunt over to the car like it's it's nothing. No, it's not fine, you guys. That walk to that car was probably so treacherous. Don't I assume it was in the Hilton Bay front That's what I garage. thought, too. That's yeah. what I assumed, too. So I was like, um, this is not real Comic-Con. Please don't assume this is Comic-Con. Comic-Con is so much more insane than this. SDCC As is... two people who have been to San Diego Comic-Con, it's not that. <laughs> it's... And the floor even looked calm, and I was like, it's not. That floor is not calm. It's not. Unless they did it literally, like, the last half hour of Sunday, like... Right, or, like, the first half hour of preview night yeah like it was it was an unrealistic i think that's what they had to do because you literally couldn't they would have had to adr that whole conversation and it wasn't really that because the floor itself is so loud the floor itself is so loud it's not just like you know like the two feet around you is no you can't hear yourself and so like if you're walking with a buddy you say hold on to my backpack so we don't get like separated like yeah or if someone calls you you're like you scream into your phone you have to text me like exactly so i i love that though that weta made all of that because again if for those like those were legit swords right and if you don't know weta is the people again who created all of the stuff for the lord of the rings and if you've ever seen a lord of the rings movie you know that is quality work the craftsmanship is Unreal. incredible. So I love when William Moss was like, yeah, we weren't allowed to touch that sword. Like, <laughs> I know. He was like, he he's like, yeah, there was one sword where we couldn't touch it. And then he just whips it out like it's nothing. And he's like, oh, you got to touch it. You got to touch the thing. You got to touch it. I loved that Well, so it's true much. because William was like the oldest at like 16. So it's like, yeah, yeah. I'm not letting a teenage boy deal with this sword that took hours and hours to make like right hands off dude and i love the inscription on the sword and ugh. but i think it's stunning i think honestly out of the whole episode again like with the mary poppins episode you can tell that those three people just loved making it loved it they and they grew loved up making like, it and they look on it so, back on it so fondly like, that's their youth, is making Narnia movies. Yeah, and it is, because again, like... To, Especially Georgie. Like, right, and you compare, you know, I hate that I'm bringing this up again, but, you know, you compare it to, like, the Harry Potter films, and, like, you know, you have someone who is, like, Daniel Radcliffe, who's very vocal about it, where he's like, it's hard because people have such a hard time disassociating you from a very specific character so he sometimes finds it difficult to like you know wrap his brain around that like he's always going to be associated with harry potter no matter what but you could tell those three are just like i'm fine with that associate me all you want with narnia i'm good like i'm super good being associated with narnia for the rest of my life so and like they look back on it so fondly not saying that the cast of harry potter they have to be able to look back on it fondly. It was such a huge chunk of their lives. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, they were just so... They're like, oh, my God, you have the costume. Oh, my God, you have this prop. Oh, my God, this is so cool. Like, oh, they just loved it so much. They loved it. 
But uh, other than that, and again, like we said earlier, seeing that man's room dedicated to, like, there is... The Narnia house. There is like... nary an object that did not get collected off of those films. It is very obvious. Those, nothing yeah. is lost. And you're like... And he's married, too. Right? And his like... wife just allows it. Like, they literally have... And it just... I had to pause again because... I just I think it's multiple rooms. It's like the top story of their house is just Narnia. It stuff. has to be. And like he and you're just like how much money? How much money? Like again, he has the beavers. No one's hearing me. He has the beavers. The literal beavers. He has Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and you're just like I don't know how to wrap my brain around this. <laughs> and he literally had all of the Pevensey's costumes except Lucy. And so what they did was they did an exchange. He's like, if I can borrow these three costumes, I am willing to part with Lucy's. And you could tell that for a second he really hesitated. He's like, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm very uncomfortable sending these costumes out of here. Because he even said, like, this is to show the cast. Like, I'm not yeah. taking it, like, for a joyride. <laughs> I'm taking it to, to show, show the cast. The cast. I, and I just I just thought it was so funny like to see that split second hesitation and he's like oh I don't know I don't know and then he's like but I'll give you Lucy's and he's like uh, uh, okay like he still hesitated even knowing he would have a complete Pevensey children collection it, it was just mind blowing to me which speaking of the word Pevensey which is how you say their last name mm-hmm. it annoyed me because he called them the Pevinces and I was like no. no, don't you dare! You said you love Narnia, and they say they're the Pevensey children in oh, a million also, times! Let's talk about the wardrobe. <gasps> okay, so this was my favorite part of the entire episode. Again, as we've established, I'm not stable emotionally. So, like, when they showed the wardrobe, I cried. I was just like, that's it. That's what brought them to Narnia. But I think the coolest background information we got was the fact that when Lucy first enters Narnia, that reaction was, was real. Genuine. Like she, so what they did was they had the front of the wardrobe and when Lucy walks backwards through the coats into Narnia, they blindfolded Georgie Henley when they brought her to set so that she couldn't see the like winter wonderland that they had created in New Zealand. Um, which she was like in a summery place and then you open the back of you know the wardrobe opens into Narnia and so what they did was they had her walk backwards so that she could not see what was there so when she turns around and she first sees Narnia and the lamppost that's real like that was my favorite little tidbit just that they got this like childlike joy and wonder that is just spectacular and that would have been hard to fake because you know when you're a kid you can't really like and you're they're like show wonderment show you know what i mean it's like kids are like what how do i do that i don't understand so for them to have like made it possible she was so young during that first movie i think what they say she was like nine no, she was like six. Oh, well, she, I, don't, I don't know how old they said she... Yeah, it had to have been like six or seven, I guess. Yeah, you're right. And um, so, like, to show that, I just... 
oh, for them to do that so that they could get that genuine reaction, oh, it spoke to me. It spoke to me. I loved it so much. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And then, is that in the Disney archives? Or was that in, like, a museum or something? Because there was a bench sitting in front of it that you could just sit at and look at it. I think they were doing some kind of highlighted exhibit, but I think okay. it's generally in the Disney archives as its home. Okay, because it had to have been. But I think they, they had... occasionally trotted out for something. Because they had it, like, situated where it was, like, the lamp post, then the wardrobe, and on the other side of the wardrobe you had the um, stunned, I guess, uh, Tumnus from when he's yeah. in the witch's castle. Um, and it was, like, it was situated so that there was literally a bench sitting in front of it, so you're like, is that an exhibit? Is that? Because, like, it looks like it. Yeah. It really looks like it. And that, just, that wardrobe is so beautiful. And just the workmanship of, like, the intricacy of the carving and stuff is... It was insane. And then when they were talking... It's a level of skill I can't even fathom, you know? I can't. I really can't. And then when they turn and they show you... um, Because at this point, he's talking to the director of the first Narnia film. And when he's talking to him, they talk about the lamppost, which, again, you know, is the first thing, other than the trees, that Lucy sees when she comes into Narnia. And that's where she sees Tumnus. And there was, like, I guess a contest, which... Rude that they didn't, didn't... for the other ones but there was a contest for like kids to come and visit the set and the kids that all came they were like this is exactly how I envisioned the lamppost and it it's not even just that like it might not be identical to what the description is in the book but it was good enough that people were like that's it that is the lamppost it's just so much care for a movie of that scale and size. It takes so many people to like create like all these little details, whether it's like the animatronic like minotaur masks that like oh, were such a huge process to get the like stunned people in and out of and like as you said, the costumes, the production <clears throat> design, all of it that to really create this whole other world. It just requires so many skilled people to like work on this and that's what I kind of like about the series is Mm -hmm. just that it lets these individual people their contribution to the overall film just let it shine for a bit and so um another one of the episodes that I was really excited about because y'all I really like Pirates of the Caribbean (laughs) like it's I know it's not really considered one of like the great franchises of all time but the first three movies we uh, wait yep we have to because i i will say that's our big asterisk on there because i've never seen the fifth one and the last five minutes of the fifth one (sighs) i will you know what it did make me wonder when i was watching this do i need to go back and rewatch pirates and i think i might actually like i literally said in a text to my friend do i need to rewatch pirates and is this the time that i finally watch the fifth one because a due to quarantine have the time b the fourth one you can skip the fifth one has some gems because it involves will and elizabeth's kid and there's some cute moments right and they're 
there's some shippable moments. There's a new ship that, like, I was like, oh, if you just do the franchise just with these two and dump Jack, I could be back on board. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Well, when we get into a full Pirates episode, we can kind of talk about the future of the franchise, which they're, the rumors of it, I I am beyond pumped about, and I'll, I'll talk to you about it when we're done recording here. But... <laughs> teasing but this was really just focusing on curse of the black pearl which right because that was you know while the first there's one. debate about the franchise as a whole or mm-hmm. even just if you're just looking at the trilogy everyone agrees the first movie is awesome and i feel like it's because there were no expectations with the first one and like as they went on because curse of the black pearl was such a massive hit they were like oh oh, oh, how do we continue? How do we ride this wave? And they just kind of weren't as good. So we will get into it. <laughs> I will defend the second and the third one wholeheartedly. I I feel it. the level still maintains. But first one, Curse of the Black Pearl, props, like, so I thought it was awesome that at first he's like, yeah, we're going to go to the Caribbean because, like, why not? Could you imagine if they did film this, like, off the coast of California or something instead of, like, actually going to the Caribbean, though? Well, some sequences are, so... But the like, majority is filmed in St. Vincent. The majority of it was filmed in St. Vincent and a couple other places. But um, fun little tidbit as far as like the fort um Mm -hmm. in port royal like the not coronation but you know the promotion ceremony when norrington becomes a commodore like that stuff was in long beach so it's funny of essentially back when dvd commentaries were a thing um there's a pirate pirates one had three different commentaries the most interesting one was with gear knightley and jack davenport and it's wasn't on the entire movie but just in scenes where at least one of the two actors was in so it was just talking about just their stuff because back then gear knightley wasn't as big of a name because she was only 18 years old but basically Gary kind of talks about she's like funny thing I fall off in Long Beach and then I land in the Caribbean (laughs) and my Kira Knightley impersonation is very rusty because I used to do it literally all the time because I got so intense about pirates where if I got excited I would start talking like Kira Knightley and that was a funny quirky little trait to have as a seventh grader totally made friends with that but um Anywho, that basically where, like, when she falls off the fort, that's Long Beach. And then when she lands in the water, that's St. Vincent. So, (laughs) but basically they go down to St. Vincent and there's a few different things that are, like, already there. And so um, what's kind of cool, you know, Jack Sparrow's, like, the subversion of the grand entrance is that he's not on this grand ship and it's just like a dinghy that's sinking and so by the time he gets to port royal it's, it's like just, just the like, mast like the top of the mast it's just like i'm barely the top of the mast that's sticking out of the water and it just happens and to so, be perfectly level so he can just walk right onto the gangplank boop and so the mast of that of that dinghy that's still like there and so actually one of the restaurant 
there's a lady that she owns a restaurant oh in i bar love in Saint that Vincent. and so she literally like concreted it into like the middle of her restaurant because people were totally... trying to steal it yeah she's like people are trying to steal it so like nope we're like putting it in concrete so try to take it out now because he was and, like why is this prop in concrete she's like ah uh, how do i say this prop See, stealing St- they were they're were trying to steal it so so i submit you can't steal it now nope it's mine <laughs> i love that she was like trying really hard not to say people were trying to steal it but saying like like you could tell she was just like um oh um there was mischief <laughs> like she's trying to find every other way to say it other than people were trying to steal it yeah i love that so she put that in concrete which is awesome and then um what was kind of cool is so penny rose who is the costume designer for the whole thing i'm so happy i'm so happy she was my favorite she's, part of the episode she, she's awesome and so she's like yeah i just i got a house here because i just didn't leave the Caribbean. and it's great oh my god she was my favorite part of that episode because okay so she was the costume designer for um inevitably all the pirates movies um, and she also uh, was the costume director for uh, Prince of Persia, uh, which was also a Disney film. Unfortunately, did not do well. Fortunately for us, had a very ripped Jake Gyllenhaal, which we love. Bless. Which we love because, you know, <clears throat> love my boyfriend, but if Jake Gyllenhaal called, goodbye. Um, but she was cracking me up. She puts up with nothing. Like when she was outfitting that extra and she's like, why are you wearing your sunglasses inside? You're inside. Take them off. You look stupid. Like, I was dying. Like, she does not care at all. And then I love that. So she asked the sketch for Barbosa. And, like, first thing Jeffrey Rush says is, like, darling, I don't wear hats. And like, <laughs> that was so funny. And, and then I took a bathroom break. And by the time, like, I came back, he had the hat on. And he's like, actually, it could work. Like, you know what? You're it's not wrong. Because cool <laughs> she's like, I, I had all these different hat options out, and he chose like the biggest hat. That was so obnoxious, and I, lo- I just, I loved it. And she just like had such fond memories of, especially Curse of the Black Pearl, and she was like, you know, it was all very collaborative with the actors themselves. Like, you know, Johnny Depp was very, um, like very involved in the way he wore his scarf and you know all of this and i loved that all the little details to jack sparrow yeah and i loved the um that sketch that they show later on in the episode where he does look the sketch looks like johnny depp as errol flynn yeah and i love did a good job with it and then he's like no i want to make it weird yeah i want to make it more keith like you know keith richardsy and uh which as he said multiple times keith richards was essentially the inspiration for jack sparrow's just like entire demeanor and personality Because essentially of pirates were the rock stars of the day exactly so i just i loved like all of the details she talked about and how she talked about like how they used like the button like how they made the buttons look um old and how they made the coat look um you know weathered and just everything and i just oh she was a treat a treat she was delightful she really was and i was like you're my favorite part of this whole episode i love you and then 
then we got to see like some of like the like concept art and creature design and stuff for the cursed pirates and you're like oh that's just so cool i loved that one (laughs) who was like yeah and then they asked me to draw a dead monkey and i was like on it like he was so stoked to draw a zombie monkey (laughs) like looking on dead monkey his sheer just like excitement in making that was so funny and then how they talked about how he made the medallion yeah and i just oh like they were literally that it was just like first go and it was just like perfectly designed up like yeah that's 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 how yep, that's you know what to that's look. it because they just gave them free reign they were like hey you know this is what we're kind of looking for just to give you like a general idea go off just go off yeah and then he created that like it was that first drawing of the medallion and they're like nailed it that's the nailed. one and then i personally loved about that episode is that so then he goes at the end of the episode or towards the end of the episode he goes to disneyland and goes to the pirates of the caribbean attraction which is obviously the og what these right what these films are based on and um which actually with the success of curse of the black pearl actually changed portions of the attraction not only because as they said in the imagineering story i have how society has changed so they've had to um change aspects of the ride but also just that they had to just add in jack sparrow to the narrative because and they like even because everyone loves this character like it's iconic right and even when you're like going you're first going into pirates of the caribbean you go through this like misty waterfall and it's the new davy jones so you know that well they they've taken him out since then but like yeah that they had that for years and years well i didn't realize that um but what i personally loved is that they're in the attraction and they're talking and the host looks and he's like that is the aztec chest from the films and he uh the uh i think he was an imagineer he was like yep that is yep. from the films we brought it here we put it into the attraction it is and the it will coolest stay here thing i love that that it takes that and they're like, and we, we found, like, when we put it in, like, we found one spare coin that had a little bit of stage blood on it. So we're like, is this, like, the one that, like, right. one of the ones that Orlando Bloom, like, you know, right released into the thing? Right. And then I think like, one of the coolest things about that first film that they draw attention to in the episode is that literally actual moments through this very, very, very well-loved attraction are in the film mm-hmm. like just portions of the ride you're like i know that just scene. lift it i know that scene from the ride <laughs> like when they're you know the three like the dog and, yeah the three yeah. pirates trying to get the keys from the dog and oh, then the uh like like him, tortuga like yeah oh, like anything yeah exactly anything from tortuga and you're just like this like the integration between the t- oh i just loved it so much it's just so great it really is and i just uh, okay so before we get to the one of the last probably two that we'll talk about more we just want to like reference three other episodes that were there so so those were the main episodes that i watched that i didn't get a a a chance this time has been insane so i i haven't watched the other ones so you can kind of give your highlights okay I can, cause, yeah. Okay, so for three of them, I'll give general highlights. So, the Tron episode. I love that it was just one of those films that was made at the way wrong time, but 
over time, it's found its audience as ha- and has cemented itself as a cult classic. And then not only that, you know, because of that fervor of being a cult classic and people really loving it over time, then we got Tron Legacy. And they talked to the director also of Tron ma- Legacy. Also made at the wrong time. Right. Again, made at the wrong time because you look at these two films and essentially, and they talked to the director of... Because Tron Legacy is actually... It's amazing. I'm not gonna it's, lie, it's stunning and masterful. It's so and beautiful, so cool. and it takes what was like really iconic about those about the first one, the light cycles, the light cycles, the way the light cycles turn at the ninety degree angles, like all of those things, like the ID the ID disc, like all of those things are still in Tron Legacy, but so it's not relevant to the props. But the fact that they got Daft Punk to do the score, oh, <laughs> come on, I mean. And then Jeff Bridges was still in it. Oh, come on. I can't. So I didn't realize, like, and that was another film that was, like, they thought it was going to succeed post-Star Wars because it was still in that, like, technology kind of, like, thing where it's, like, kind of space-agey in a way because, you know, video games were getting bigger, but they still weren't what we have today, which we actually have films based off of video games now their first video games that get turned into films not like a film is or like a you know a video game gets or a movie is based what am i trying to say we have you know again movies now that are based on video games but this was a video game was the movie like you fall into the video game and yes you have that now with like a really saccharine version of that with wreck it ralph but mm-hmm. with this, like, he's taken into, it's, it's, they do, it was made at the wrong time. It was really made at the wrong time. But people have understood in watching it over the last 30 years that it was so far ahead of its time. And it kind of did predict the way we exist now in the term. Okay, so Tron was about like, hey, just to let you know, like, you have yourself and then you have your user self inside the game which is essentially what social media is. Like, you have yourself, and then you have the internet version of yourself, which is, like, you know, highlight reel or whatever it is you you decide to share on social media. So it was very predictive of where we'd be as a society, and I think, in a way, that people were disbelieving of that, but also very scared of that. Um, and it's interesting, because they show the director, and he's like, I was so far into the future then... And now I've gone analog, and in that time, everyone was analog, and now everyone's on the internet. So he's like, so I've done this weird switcheroo, um, but it was really cool. Like, they showed the jackets they gave the crew and everything, but I just thought it was, like, a really fun, cool episode, and, like, how they showed that Tron Legacy elevated the original and brought it to the now while keeping so many original elements, and and I think... With because it's already in Shanghai or it's in Hong Kong. It's it's in Shanghai. It's in Shanghai. And, I was right the first time. So it, the, it's already in Shanghai now, but in Disney World they're currently building the light cycle roller coaster. And I think with that, people are gonna ride that and be like, Where is this from? And like, why is this so cool? And I think it is going to have this like weird resurgence. And it pains me to learn that there was going to be a Tron series on Disney Plus and it just got axed. And it makes me so sad because, especially now, they can do so much with it. They could really, ooh, they could really do something amazing. What I'm thinking is hopefully, like, 
hopefully having the ride in the U.S. does kind of right. like spark that interest in it. And that's what I'm saying. Like, I was talking to my friend who I saw Tron Legacy in theaters with, and I was like, I really kind of hope that, like, with this ride being here, that it's, you know, something that people are going to be more interested in and be like, we want more Tron, you know, content. And because, like, again, it's a really, really well-loved cult classic. It has really, really found its fan base, not just Tron Legacy, but Tron itself. Um, and even like showing all the different ways they manipulated things to make it look like they were like the technology of it all is also very like well ahead of its time. But I thought that was a really good episode. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. That one just holds a special place in my heart because uh, when I was little, there were two things I did every time I went to Disney World. I went to the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids playground at uh, Hollywood Studios, which is where, oh my god, what is it now? I think it's actually Toy Story Land now. It might be. I don't know where exactly it was, but they had, like, a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids playground with, like, giant ants, and, like, this. you're, you're made to feel like you got shrunk, and I have so many pictures on, like, the ant heads, and, oh, I loved it so much, and then also at Epcot, where I want to say it's where, like, Soren is now. Um, they had a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids show. And so I had seen it so many times that I knew it was a 3D show. And I knew exactly when the mice were crawling under your feet, so I'd lift my legs up. I knew exactly when the snake was coming out of the screen, so I'd take my glasses off or close my eyes. Um, I just really loved the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids films. And... Um, they had, uh, they had, they showed, like, the shrink ray. Again, there's, like, a lot of things that, you know, didn't really survive this film set. Um, they talked to Rick Moranis, who played the main character, and he said, I didn't, he said he took stuff, and but he took mostly things that were, like, photos or drawings or something so that he could auction them off. Um, like, you know, just over the course of the years just be able to auction off for things for charity um but it was the, i th- think one of the coolest things was is that the remote for the shrink ray is like a dictator machine that they just like kept adding bits and bobs to to make it look like this crazy device and then they had that's awesome i know and then they had like the baseball that they throw through the window and it ends up like starting the machine off and that's what shrinks them um, they have, like, that with, like, the burn thing, and then they have, they talk to the people who did the stop-motion animation creations of, like, the scorpion and the ant and, like, how cool all that was and, like, what went into that. Um, so that was, like, a really fun nostalgic episode. Um, I don't have a ton of connection to Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, but they talk to, like, Kathleen Turner. It- it's a huge technical achievement, though. It, yeah. And that's and that's what it is. Like, when you watch the episode, the moral of that episode is, oh, my God, look at all of these tricks they used to make this possible. Like, because it is. You have this crazy animation, and then you have that as an over... You have the animation overlaid over the film, and then you have... It has to look a certain way, and, like those cartoons are like breaking through walls so you have to break the wall to match the anim- it it's it is an actual 
technical achievement. So that was another one of those films where you're like, this was pre-CGI. So everything that went into it was just unreal. So if you want something to just like blow your mind, watch the Who Framed Roger Rabbit episode. The last episode in the ep- in the um, series before I get to my favorite episode um, was the Muppets. And there was, that one was just so fun. Um, they talked to Gonzo and asked him how what it was like to film the movie. Um, they saw like um, costumes from Miss Piggy and they said, hey, how do, why did Miss Piggy always wear pearls or have high collars? And they were like, oh, that was to like, eliminate people seeing the break in her neck so that like the seams the seams in her neck so you always had that and then they like showed you how Jim Henson like when they're driving the car which by the way that car is in a museum it's in the oh what kind of car is it it's not a Buick it's a I can't remember what the car kind of car it was but um the one he said hey thanks i got it from my uncle or whatever um it's in a it's in a museum and that's like one of the main things people come to that museum to see is fozzy's car and they love it and it's so cool and they show you how like they took out like a portion of the car in the back and that's where the driving actually happened that's where they put the wheel and the brakes and the gas pedal so that in front, what you see is Jim Henson and the guy who does Fozzie Bear. Like, they're under the seat doing the puppets. Yeah. And I just thought, like, that was so cool. And there were, it was, a ri- and, like, they have the banjo from when Kermit is in the bog singing Rainbow Connection. And it's, that was, again, another thing where people were, like, so joyous about being a part of that. Um, and then they obviously talked to the person who does the voice of Gonzo and that was really cool um and then personally one of my favorite episodes was the Nightmare Before Christmas episode and that one had like again okay so I don't know if anyone knows this but if you're like a really big film buff you know that stop motion animation is exhausting work like it can take you three hours to get three minutes of a film yeah. Because you have to change it every second. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking of the Ben Wyatt stop motion. <laughs> it's okay. So you you have, like, you have to change, you know, so many things. And what I thought was so cool is they actually showed, like, for most characters, they would just, like, manipulate the faces and the bodies. But for Jack, they had different heads that they could put on where he had like 40 different expressions so that they didn't have to like constantly be changing his face because his face is the most expressive in the film. And um, what I thought was the coolest thing is that there is literally only one version of this script and it's in the uh, Writers Guild of America archives. And she literally wrote one script. That was it. There are no other versions. And in the one that they have at the Writers Guild, all the only thing that's different are like notes from Tim Burton where he's like, okay, change the line to this, change the line to that. This is where this is going to go. And that's it. There was no other. And she wrote it in two weeks. She wrote this script that we all Dude. know and love in two weeks. And there's only one version of it, which 
as a writer almost makes me nauseated because I'm like <laughs> the talent of it all um, and it was so good that there's only one version which I thought was amazing um, and that everyone like again on Mary Poppins or you know any of these films really is that everyone they talk to from you know the guy who created the very first Jack or um, which he has like he has like kept you know in a box and um, just as like a model for what they would make it off of later on and not much change between that first model to what they have in the film um, from like the guy who created that to the scriptwriter to Danny Elfman who did the music and if you've ever seen a Tim Burton film you've heard of Danny Elfman's um, score score yeah I was gonna say screenplay for some reason but I just went with SC and then ran with screenplay um so like the actor who portrayed Jack like they all like the set directors the people who did the stop motion they all have such an amazing affection for it and just like they all kept something like they showed the big um set piece for um the spiral hill which often goes um on exhibit everywhere like they will ship this gigantic piece and it will often go on exhibit um but they had like little pieces and they showed you like how they showed jack's footprints as he's walking up the snowy spiral hill toward sally Mm -hmm. and they show you how they show you like the original idea for sally which was like very vampy and very you know different but the woman who wrote the script was like yeah but here's the thing she can't look like that because she has to look like something that was thrown away because that's kind of what she was. She was just kind of a throwaway. So they went and they re tweaked the whole look of Sally and they just like, that's why her everything is patchwork. And, you know, they talk about all that stuff. But my favorite part of the whole episode was they go and they talk to Danny Elfman, who, like we said, you know, was, not only the person who created the score and wrote, I think, two songs, but he also was the singing voice of Jack. Yeah. And so one of the coolest things, other than finding out that the woman who wrote the script was dating Danny Elfman at the time, so it was this, like, weird collaborative energy, but Danny Elfman, again, like I said, did the singing voice for Jack Skellington, and so he's talking very affectionately about it and he's like show like explaining to you via vocals that when jack was like this he would sing like this and when he was excited and when he was sad and like he would sing like all these expressions and like what he wanted to bring to jack skellington and it this movie took two years to make before post-production so it took like two years to fully create this film and so he's like this was two years of my life like Jack was two years of my life and that's the same thing that the voice actor said about Jack he's like this was two years of my life and then you go to the director's house who also um, did like Coraline and some other um, stop motion animation films and in his house at the very top of this wall that has so many props and so many characters from he did James and the Giant Peach too um all these different characters from these films that he's done at the very top a very large 
So at like before everything spirals out of control, once they've kidnapped Sandy Claus and Jack is going to deliver all those wild presents to kids, um, he's in the the like coffin sleigh with you know the skeleton reindeer, and he has that giant piece. And a lot of these pieces, which is important to note, any of the claymation, they have to be. Um, they have to do upkeep every about two years because those clay, that clay is meant to like degrade and like it can melt really easily. So just every two years they have to like restore these pieces. But he has that giant sleigh with the reindeer. And it's so funny because as they talk about in the episode, like it didn't necessarily become this giant hit for them in the early 90s when it came out. It's just, again, like, Tron, but on a much larger scale and much more widely accepted scale, Nightmare Before Christmas has found its audience over time. And, you know, people watch it at Halloween. They watch it at Christmas. It's a classic that everyone associates with those holidays. And, you know, nary a Disney visitor that hasn't seen or owns a piece of Nightmare Before Christmas anything, like hat, ears, because uh, they have mini ears, they have, uh, you know, shirts, sweatshirts, pants. you can go into almost any Disney store and Disney World, Disneyland, whatever, you're going to find something Nightmare Before Christmas, and, you know, it's just over time. It's- and that's kind of what brought the cult status and why it kind of endures. Right, and that's what he said. Weird goth kids love their Jack Skellington merch. And that's what he said. He also said that, you know, I have kids come up whose parents love the films, and then they're trick-or-treating in my house, and they're two-year-old is dressed as Jack or Sally or whatever. Um, And then he said when people come up to him dressed like the characters in the films, like when they come trick-or-treating, he literally invites them into his house and shows them the giant Santa Claus, uh, Jack is Santa Claus sculpture, and they just, like, freak out. They're like, oh, my God! Oh, my God! That's the coolest thing ever! So he's like, that's one of been, like, one of the most enjoyable things for me is that over time, you know, you have those kids who originally found it and now they're having kids. So their kids are falling in love with it and it's just enduring. And like now you go to Disneyland between Halloween and Christmas, you're going to get the nightmare before Christmas overlay on the haunted mansion. So it's just to Ryan Gosling's dismay. (laughs) So it's just taken on this like very like, all-encompassing kind of nature where people love it so much and they have such affection for it that like again that was another film where they had such affection for making it and I think that's what ultimately I think is the biggest takeaway other than like all these films were pre-CGI and you know other than like Pirates and Narnia which didn't really rely heavily on CGI they did some but they didn't really rely heavily on it at least in the first films but because again I mean you can't have centaurs or fawns in real life so of course they use cgi in prince caspian so you have all these films that were pre-cgi that were so ahead of their time and innovative and you know you have those avant-garde films like tron like nightmare before christmas that took a while to find their audience but have reached those cult classic you know levels so you have all these really great films that ultimately the takeaway other than the artistry, is that these are films that people look back so affectionately on making. Like, yes, he has props and costumes and drawings and all this stuff from these films, but when he talks to the people, 
these are people who genuinely just look back on that experience and are like that's one of my fondest working memories like in my job in my profession in my career I look back on that with such fondness such affection such love and we poured so much of ourselves into it and I think that's ultimately what the takeaway is from this is that these are films that were made with just so much joy and people still look back on and say that was an experience I loved yeah because it is a cool thing of just the movies especially anything in like kind of the Disney canon as well that you know you experience it in either like childhood or just your like adolescence as well and so these movies become a part of you so that's where like even just a single prop like just brings out this emotion in the ties and just that little serotonin boost yeah um that you get that dopamine rush because you're just like oh my gosh it's the thing from the thing and that as far as just watching these episodes you can do it in a quick binge but also just kind of spacing them out is just oh yeah fun little like just brief little delights to catch up on and so um definitely recommend trying it out and so it was fun talking this one and we'll be kind of back to just talking as we'll have some more like individual movies and because there's like with productions of television all that there's less television to cover right now but yeah and there's definitely plenty of titles and things for us to cover in the meantime before like production and everything gets back to normal and so thank you so much for listening to us that um thank you so much for also taking like the time just to kind of listen through the beginning part of just addressing some real world stuff so um but then also get get got to have a little bit of fun and so because you you have to balance it out to stay sane so stay sane stay safe um take care of yourself and take care of those around you so um thanks again for listening and stay tuned for next time Bye. bye